Good morning. Uh, grab your Bibles. We're getting back into the Word. We're going back to Second Kings today, chapter 4. Big jump into the Old Testament. Uh, but uh, before we go there, let me remind you, this is not church. This is me talking to this camera right here. At least for a few more weeks, we're fixing to be live, ladies and gentlemen. I can go on and tell you a certainty that that day is now imminent. So uh, I'll give you more details, but hopefully by or before Christmas, we're going to be live. And I am pretty pumped about that. Uh, but right now, I am still talking to this camera right there into your face. And I want you to grab your Bible, go to Second Kings chapter 4. And I want you to plan to come tonight and hang out with us. We meet currently in Tempe, Arizona. And we can tell you how to find us if you go online, social media, any place. You can hit us up through YouTube. You can hit us up through uh, our website, through any form of social media, through email. And we'll tell you exactly how to find us. Love for you to come hang out with us. We've got a great group of people who love to just talk about God's Word and pray, uh, care for each other. We eat some food. It's a great time. Love for you to be part of it, especially if you have questions or thoughts on these things. So... Uh, we have been looking at what the Bible says about emotional battles, and today, uh, well, we were continuing this theme of I can't help how I feel. Kind of asking that question, is that true? I can't help how I feel. And again, you may, I've said it before last week, but you may feel like you're alone. You may feel like uh, you're not even you anymore, like nobody gets you because you don't even get you. And wherever it is you are, it's a dark place. It may be sunny outside, but you feel like the shadow. You don't feel like you, and you feel like maybe you're passing through like a ghost, unnoticed, unwanted. Uh, I, I don't know. Can we help how we feel? Can we do that? As Christians, we have emotions, but they should work as God designed them. As Christians, we have emotions just like anybody else, but ours should work as God designed them, and we shouldn't be controlled by them instead. So today we're looking at escaping depression, and this is a powerful one, escaping depression. This is going to be something that um, probably is going to hit home with a lot of people, so we're going to lay into it. But go to Second Kings chapter 4. Uh, let me read a few verses as usual, and then we'll go into it. I'm going to start out in verse 1. It says... Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditors come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elijah said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Let me pray. Lord, your word is powerful, incredible, awesome, amazing. Thank you for the great privilege it is to open it, read it, to share it, to learn from it. God, uh, most of all, to, to teach others. And, I, and I'm not saying that as a pastor, although that's true. I'm saying it as a servant of yours who also has a heart for others to see your truth. And there are tons of us, Lord. I pray that all those who have a copy of your word would learn it and know it so that they can share it with others. Help us hear it today from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. So some of you, like me, you may have back pain. Um, I, I, I usually have lower back pain a pretty good bit. And I, who knows when it started. But for the first majority of Molly and I's marriage, we've been married 20 years. And the, first, uh, the majority of the first half of it, anyway, we had a large pillow-top mattress. 
If you have one of these, you know what I'm talking about, but they, they're super soft. They have this awesome like layer of padding on top. It's like a little pillow right on top of your, your mattress. And when you first lay on them, oh my goodness, you just kind of sink in it a little bit and it's so soft and comfortable. But over the years, the pillowiness, if that's a word, <laughs> eventually kind of sinks a little bit. And for me, that started causing my back to hurt during the night because of the way I'd sleep on my side or my, or whatever, it, I mean, or my stomach or whatever. It just, it would cause my back to arch a little more. And so in the mornings, I'd wake up in pain and sometimes I'd go through the whole day. And that's still a great mattress, but we ended up getting a new one that's much more firm and it's definitely helped. The pain's still there, but, but it's helped a lot to have that mattress. And I know some people swear by memory foam, you know, and, and that might be great. Supposedly it does both. It bends to conform to you, but then it returns to its form, not higher or lower, but back to kind of that same memory, that level form where it was, where like it remembers, at least until it wears out and it doesn't bounce back. Eventually, you know, you put that depression in there, it doesn't come quite back up so high. In a small way, depression's like this, you know. You're in a perfect, comfortable place, and it's wonderful, things are great, but something begins to change. Maybe it's very slowly, maybe it's suddenly, I don't know, but your your comfortable place begins to sink a little bit from the weight. And it may seem like it's not much at first, but you find yourself hurting. And sometimes hurting for longer and longer. And sometimes that hurt doesn't get better. And, and even the memory foam, it stays sunk in too a little bit. And, and maybe it's something you just learn to live with. Hey, this is life. I'm just going to deal with it. Or maybe it becomes crippling, like you can't even get up in the morning. And what you find is that all you really want is a way to make the pain stop. The psychological pain, the physical pain, whatever it is, you just want to make it stop. You, you you don't want to you don't want a mattress or anything that bends lower or goes higher. You just want something that stays flat, that stays in that great comfortable place. You want something firm that supports you, you know. And I realize that's a bit of a simplistic example. I could have gone to the Great Depression in the early 1900s or talked about the one that was recent a few years ago. But I kind of use that one because I know for many people, depression feels like you're sinking in the ocean. With a anchor tied, tied around your ankles, it doesn't feel anything like a mattress sinking. I realize I made a little bit light of it, but I'm not trying to. I want you to, what I'm trying to say is I want you to know that it does not have to be inescapable. No matter whether, what it feels like, it's not about cutting chains off. It's more like a mattress that can, it doesn't have to be inescapable. It does not have to be something that you just live with, it's just the way it is. It, circumstances, listen to me, current circumstances do not have to define future ones. Do you understand what I'm saying? Current circumstances do not have to define future ones. Neither do past circumstances have to define future ones. There is hope. So maybe, like this woman that we're looking at today, you found yourself facing a hopeless situation. Maybe that's you. But I want to show you that there's a path to escape. And it begins with acting on your faith. Now, if you don't have faith in Christ, we've got to start there. But I'm saying it begins with acting on your faith. You're going to see this. So look, let's look at this. 
We're going to look at the pit of depression. And then we're going to look at the path of escape. Okay? So it's there. We're going to get there. The pit of depression and the path of escape. So the pit of depression, man. Look at this in verse 1. And this, there's a similar story to this in 1 Kings 17 um, about a starving widow. And that's Elijah. Uh, this is Elisha. This is the disciple of Elijah, or one of them, but the more famous one. So, verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, which is a little side note, by the way, prophets were married. So there's some say men of God, priests or whomever, can't be married. Not true. In this case, we have a prophet uh, who's married. Uh, he, it says, the wife cried. To Elijah, that word cry is a heavy word. It, it means like begging, like a, appealing in tears to Elijah, Elisha. Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditors come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elijah said to her, what shall I do, to you, do for you? What do, I, what do you want me to do? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing. Nothing in the house. That word nothing is heavy too. That's like endless beyond negative. Endless beyond negative. Absolutely nothing. Nothing whatsoever except a jar of oil. The word jar is like a flask. Almost like a, you know, just a little flask of oil. It's not like she's got a big, huge jar in the cabinet. We're talking about a little flask of oil. It didn't get much worse than this, guys. This would be the pit of depression that most of us honestly never reach. She lost her husband, died. She's starving. Okay. She's about to lose her home, which she already has nothing in for whatever reason. Maybe she sold everything that she had to make it this far. Whatever it is, she has nothing left except this jar. And even at the point of having her children now enslaved over family debt, she couldn't work as a woman. She could have gone, you know, there were provision for the destitute, but I mean, she couldn't have gone and got a job. And even if she did, who's going to take care of the two children? You ever been there? Maybe no one died, but is it debt? You ever been depressed over debt? Is it responsibilities that you just can't handle? I don't know how to handle all this anymore. Is it fear of loss? What's going to happen when I lose more? I've already lost so much. Maybe somebody did die in your situation. I don't know. Maybe somebody did die. Is it loneliness? Is it anger? Is it fear of the unknown of the future is it a sense of just life is overwhelming now i'm alone how am i going to do this it's impossible where's god why is this happening why is this happening to me what did i do if you're a believer I, you know i've been faithful and those are all fair questions man they're honest questions but let me just tell you something none of them provide a solution Think about that a second. If God were to answer all those questions, they wouldn't really help you. It would not help you to have an answer to any of those. What you really want to know is how do I get out of this? How do I escape? That's what you really want to know. How do I find balance again? Where is hope? Could I ever have joy again? That's what you want to know. 
So first, note her actions here. Note her actions in what we've read so far. She's not passively sleeping or huddled up alone in the dark somewhere against the wall in the corner. She's not staying on the couch with a handful of pills and a doctor on speed dial, you know, in pain and trying to numb it nonstop. That's, that's not what she's doing. She is reaching out for help. So right out of the gun, let's notice that she's reaching out for help. Now, we, we don't know anything more than that. How long has this been? I mean, how long has all this been going on? How did he die? All that. We don't know any of that. Has she reached out to family already? Has she reached out to anyone? We don't know. It doesn't matter. But what we do know is that here she's turning to God. Through, that's why she's going to Elisha, to a man of God. She's turning to God, and this man has been invested in her life because she said, you know he has been faithful. So she, she's obviously, he knows this man. So she's turning to somebody, a man of God whom she knows, and in doing so, she's turning to God. And it's almost like the church in a lot of ways, tell you the truth, it is. Everybody wants to write off the church as, well, the church is the reason I'm depressed. Hold on a minute. It's almost like she's turning to the to it, in a sense. When it says the sons of the prophets, that's actually a title. That doesn't mean that he was a, a child of a prophet. That means he was a member of the sons of the prophets, which basically was kind of like a seminary. In the Old Testament, you can see it throughout Second Kings popping up. It was a group of men who felt the call of God to be prophets. And they were being trained on how to hear from God and teach and preach God's word in order to provide um, the word of God to the people of Israel as Israel was growing in the land. You can go back and look at that in Second Kings. So he was one of those people. And notice Elijah's response, man. This is huge. Look at his response. What do you want me to do about it? And our text, you know, goes straight on to the next sentence, but there's probably a pause here. What do you want me to do about it? Man, is that not a politically correct response? And that's not something we would allow today at all. No way. If a pastor said that now, people would lose their mind. What do you want me to do about it? But then look where he begins. Look where he begins. He, he asks her, what does she already have? Look at that. Not, okay, let me handle this. I got this girl. We're good. Not, you know what? It's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Uh, what, what exact, tell me exactly what you want me to do for you. What, what, what do you need exactly? doesn't start there. He didn't start with what you need at all. He says, what do you already have? Why is that a great place to begin? Thankfulness, right? It puts your eyes back onto no matter no matter how low it is, it's not all the way empty yet. Also, notice her attitude. She's referring to herself and her husband as servant or slave. It's taking a, a humble position here, a position of humility and acknowledging that her respect and service was to Elisha and therefore to God. That's what she's saying. And as a slave, her life was not her own. She was confessing total dependency here on God and looking to a man of God to provide answers from God. That's what she's doing. Uh, servant and slave are the same word. But now notice what she said, though, because what, what about the children? There's a difference here with the children. In the parents' case, they were indebted to, uh, they had indebted themselves, excuse me, as slave to Elisha and therefore God. 
and the children are about to be forced into slavery against their will because of things that were beyond their control and they didn't have anything to do with. And sometimes we face depression and it feels like we're the second. We're the children, right? We're the ones who've done nothing to deserve the situation, nothing to deserve the horrors that have come on us and that we now face, and that we're forced into this life of slavery and depression because of it. But, let me ask you this. Have you been in the first category? That's the problem. The problem is, we also fail to be people who surrender our lives to God. We fail to be people who are slaves to Christ, who become by our own submissions, his submission, his slave. How much would it change? Think about this a minute. How much would it change our depression? Just think about it. How much would it change our depression if Christ had all of our lives, even the parts that we're holding back or clinging to because we either want them, regardless of the consequences, or because... Maybe we believe that we have to own the pain. It's mine. I have to own that pain. It's mine. Or we can't risk what he might do with it. For instance, what if he made us made it public? What if he made us go public with it? Ooh, can't have that happen. So you have the pit of depression, and then you have the path of escape. Look at this. It's awesome. So I'm going to read this few verses here, and then we'll pull them apart. Verse 3 says, Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few, which meant it required some faith. He didn't define how much. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. When one is full, set it aside. So that required expectation. All right, that required something, something, I have expectations, something's going to happen. So she went from him and she shut the door behind herself after having gathered it all and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, each one at a time here, she said to her son, bring me another. So they're filling one and moving it and bring another. So that, and, and he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. And she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay the debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So put yourself there a minute. When extreme depression comes, all we want to do is crawl up in bed and pull the covers over our head. Am I wrong? And stay in bed. Maybe, depending on how severe it is, we're praying that we don't wake up. We just want to go back to sleep and don't wake up. But look at this. And here comes the path. All right. Number one, we already talked about what do you already have? Let's start there. What do you already have? And then number two, go outside. Look what he told her. Go outside. Hey, he says more, but let's just pause with those two words. Go outside. Elijah didn't just turn her to welfare. Hey, call welfare. Nor did he hand her a pot of gold. Well, you're lucky day, man. God loves you. Here's a million dollars. Person's going to explode with cash. He, he didn't say all that. He gave her a plan of action. He gave her steps to do. And they were, this plan required faith, one that meant leaving her seat and going outside. Sometimes, honestly, it's just that, just that much is helpful. Just go get in the sun a second. Walk out and feel the sun on your face. Sometimes that even, even that is enough. Go outside. Look at the next thing. What do you already have in the house? Go outside and then talk to your neighbors. Talk to your neighbors. Look what he told her. She had to go ask to borrow their stuff. What's that going to do? Well, first of all, realize it's going to make her realize you're not alone. You're not alone here. You're not the only person 
in the world. You're not the only person in the block. And people might actually know you that you don't think know you. You're not alone. Also, ask them for help. You're going to ask, have to ask people for help. Find that there are people who actually care because people are going to help. Meet your, you're going to know your neighbors, meet your neighbors, go to your neighbors. You're going to find help. You're going to ask them, you're going to ask for help. You're going to find that people actually care because they are going to help. And then notice it says borrow from them, which means when you're done, you're going to have to take it back, which means you're going to have to visit again. And in that case, guess what? You might be able to explain what God did for you. What's that going to do for your time? What do you already have? Number one. Number two, go outside. Number three, talk to your neighbors. Number four, act on faith, man. You're going to have to move on your faith. She was faithful to trust God, even though she had no idea this would work or what was even going to happen. He didn't tell her what was going to happen. He said, go borrow jars and bring them in and start pouring that stuff. He didn't have no idea what was going to happen. She would have had to answer why she needed the jars. She's going to go to all these neighbors. Can I borrow jars from, can I borrow jars? I'm sure they probably knew that she was, you know, her husband had died and she'd had a rough time. I'm sure they probably knew that. So what do you need my jars for? You got more than you need over it? What do you need my jars? Ignore, she'd have had to ignore the ridicule because some of the neighbors are going to ridicule her, I'm sure. She had to ignore all that, push past all those that hated or doubted, and she was going to have to be obedient, listen to me, expecting God to act. That's faith. Not sure what to do or what's going to happen, but expecting he's going to do something. Elisha told her to shut themselves back in the house once they got these empty containers. Alone with God. Not even Elisha's there. It's just them, alone with God. Just her and her sons. And the ones who have the need, only them. And they took the little that they already had in this little flask, and they... She starts to pour it into one jar, and it just continues to pour, filling that jar. And when it gets to the top, one son takes it, and the other son, I, I believe, slides that jar under the next empty one there, and it just keeps going until we get no more jars to slide under, and then it just stops running out. That's the way I see it. They took the little they already had and poured it in obedience to God, and he acted He acted. And that's the last piece here. Number one, what do you already have? Number two, go outside. Number three, talk to neighbors. Number four, have faith. Act on faith. Be obedient in faith. But number five, you're going to have to expect an act of God. An act of God to provide salvation, to provide hope. No matter how much I'd like to tell you that there's a step-by-step prescription to just eliminate depression. I'd love to tell you that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that like any other emotional struggle, there's a point where God has to act. God and God alone must act. But the good news is he will. His word says he will. He will. But it requires faith and expectation in action, obedience, right? Like I said, she likely had no idea what was going to happen. She certainly had no idea that the amount that she gathered in expectation was going to determine the amount of supply that God provided. Remember, he didn't tell him how, how many to get. Just don't get too little. You know what I mean? I mean, Elisha just said that they need to be empty and not too few. That's it. And empty's a, 
Huge word, right? That's a key word. Why not just go, hey, go to your neighbors and ask them for oil and flour and whatever the groceries you need, canned goods. They're going to give them all to you. You're going to have it all. Why didn't she, why go ask for empty jars? Why not just go ask for jars? Can I borrow a jar full of oil? Can I borrow flour? Can I borrow what I need to make food? Uh, she could have still done all these steps thus far. She could have, you know what? She could have looked around at what we have. All we've got is this jar and this oil. She could have, by faith, gone to meet her neighbors and talk to her neighbors. She could have gone outside and done that and asked for help. But why borrow empty jars? Empty jars. It's leaving room for God to act. Leaving room for God to act, right? And this was, you know, this way there's no debt when it's over. She doesn't owe them now as well. And not only that, the debt that she already had, she's now able to repay. She could have never seen this coming. So is the secret to battling depression finding some profit to go to? Yes. But who's the prophet? It's not me. It's not a pastor. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. What's the miracle she asked for here? She didn't ask for a Maserati. She asked for life. For salvation. Save us, we're going to die. Save us, my sons are going to become slaves. Save us. She asked for salvation. What's the thing that we need most, that we should ask for most from our prophet? Salvation, life. Notice that once it's full, by the way, a couple observations here. Once it's full, guess what? It's stopped. It says that right there. It's stopped. This is not ongoing miracle prosperity, endless life of wealth. It's stopped. The jars were also borrowed. She didn't get to keep the jars. When it was all said and done, she might have had some financial equivalency here, but she was back to the one jar, and that's it. Notice that once it stopped, it was enough, though, to pay debts and let her sons survive and grow up without slavery. It was not like, hey, your your kids will never have to work again, neither will you. You ever have to worry about money again. You're going to be set, whatever. It paid off debts, and it left enough that her kids were provided for as they grew up. Also, remember her situation was not the result of getting the latest Apple Watch and a 200-inch plasma screen with her, you know, brand new platinum chase card. That's not the case. Her husband had died, left her without the ability to pay for anything, food, rent, or lease, or whatever on her home, her land, a bills, whatever, and when the jars are... All full too, by the way. Notice what she does. When the jars are full, notice what she does. She goes back to Elisha. She goes back to the man of God with what do I do next? She doesn't just take them as her own. Oh, awesome, man, we're rich. Look at this. We got all this. She doesn't do that. She doesn't say, all right, we're making breakfast. And, you know, she doesn't do that either. She goes back to him. What if he said, now go give them away? What if he said, I tell you what, glad you borrowed all of those jars and now that they were empty before and now that they're full of oil, take them all back to all your neighbors full of oil. What if he told her to do that? Would she have done it? I believe so, absolutely. 
because she'd been following the lead of God and be obedient to trust him for what was next. Only for what was next. Each step of the way, not expecting that, oh, here's the solution. Nope, she just obediently, next step, okay, now what? Okay, now what? Even when it looks like hope is restored, she still says, okay, now what? Now what? Jesus said it this way. Listen to me, Matthew 6. You probably know it, but you're going to hear it again. Verse 31. Therefore, don't be anxious. Don't don't worry, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things are going to be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Man, don't worry about it. And I realize, look, I realize you may have doubts. I realize you may be like, well, it's easy for you to say all this stuff. I know. And if you struggle with depression, it's a real deal. I get that. There's real cause for feeling depressed in your life because of something in your past. I hear you and I believe you. I'm not saying that's not the case. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get medicine and doctors are quacks or not. I'm not saying any of that. You may need, you may need those things. That might actually be something you need to do. I'm not trying to discard any. I'm not even trying to discard demonic spirits. That could very well play a role in it too. But whether it's the fallen world that we're in, our sinful flesh, or the devil himself, it's a lie. That's all I'm trying to tell you. It is a lie that you must be depressed. It is a lie that you must be depressed. Understand that Satan is the father of lies. Lying is his nature. God is love. Satan is lies. Jesus said so himself. You know, I remember uh, hearing a preacher who was asked once, uh, do, all, do dogs go to heaven? You know, do pets go to heaven? Dogs go to heaven? And his answer blew me away. <laughs> he said, your question assumes that heaven might disappoint you. It wasn't a yes or no answer, you know what I mean? He said, your question assumes that heaven might disappoint you. Man, how often do we anticipate the perfection of heaven? The perfection of heaven in one moment, then worry the next moment about it. Worry about what it's going to be like the next moment. I can't wait for heaven. I can't wait for perfection. I can't, oh, but what if my dog's not there? And I'm a dog lover, okay, so I'm, I'm not going there. I'm just saying, man, what a great thing. What does that have to do with depression? Well, ultimately, by accepting depression, listen to me, hear this, listen to me. By, by accepting depression, it's Satan telling you God's not enough. It's Satan telling you God is not enough. It's your flesh telling you God's not good because you're hurting. Because of something horrific that's happened to you, maybe in the past or whatever, and therefore God's not good. Because if he was, he wouldn't let you hurt. It's your broken heart telling you God can't fix it. God can't fix it. It's that wicked demonic voice in your ear telling you God's not worth living for. If he was, he'd take all this away. God's not worth living for. It's the wickedness around you in the world that's telling you God won't deliver you from your past. God can't rescue you from what you've been through, nor will he save you from what comes tomorrow. It is a lie. And it may be 
that you need to talk to a professional. I don't know what you've been through. Maybe you already are. But I can still tell you, no matter what, at its core, depression is a lie. A lie. You were not created to be in that state. You know how I know? Because God created you out of love and in the beginning gave the whole world to the man he created and to his children. He loves you. And no matter what you faced and what you've been put through since, and I'm sure there's junk, no matter what it is, no matter what you're facing now, depression is not what you were created to be or created to experience or created for. And listen to me, if you know Jesus, it's definitely not. You know how I know? Because he said, I have come that they may have life and life more abundantly, not in greater depression. Weigh that one out however you want. So, what it says. so what do we do with this? Well, it, you know what? I already dropped five on you. I'll give you a six, but easy. Number one, not easy to do, but easy to hear. <laughs> Number one. Look around. What do you already have? What do you already have? Are you dealing with massive depression because of horrific things that have gone on in your past, but you're married right now? What? Are you, well, you got a wife, man. You got a you got a woman that committed her whole life to you. A woman that committed her whole life. You got a wife. What, what if, what if you're dealing with, man, I've lost my job now. I've lost my, you know, my, I've, maybe I've lost my wife. Maybe I've lost her too. Maybe I've, or maybe I've lost my husband. Whatever it is. I don't know. But you look around and you're like, man, but I live in a great city. I live in a great place. I've got great friends. Maybe you got children. Maybe you lost a child. I don't know. But look around you. What is it that you have? I know it's bad, but what do you have? And then number two, go outside. Stop sitting in the dark. Get outside on a regular basis. Take walks. Go for hikes. Man, I live in Phoenix. It's a great place to do that. Get out into the mountains and love what God created for a minute. Get outside. See people. See people walking around. And then talk to number three. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to people. Ask them for help. Tell people what you're going through. Tell them I need your help. Here's what I'm dealing with. You know? Uh, number four, faith. Have faith that God is going to deliver you from this. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may be. But just have faith that he is going to deliver you from it and be faithful to him. Continued, whether it's church or sharing the gospel, studying the word, whatever those things are that you do, and you should do all those things. What What is it that you're doing that displays that your faith is in him? Do it. You know what I mean? And then five, you've got to have to expect the act of God. You've got to say, God, I'm expecting you to take this away. I'm expecting you to heal. I'm expecting you to fix this, to provide salvation. I'm expecting it. And then I'll give you one other thing. Practice prayer, like real prayer, you know, fasting even, and asking, biggest part, asking others to join you in prayer. You know, even Jesus did it. Matthew 26, verse 36. Let me just read this. You know this. This is right as he's headed to the cross, night before. Then Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So Jesus himself now is going to pray over what he's dealing with. All right. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled so they leave the other disciples there, and then the three of them plus Jesus begin to walk farther forward, and, and he's getting worked, and he's getting sorrowful and troubled. In verse 38, then he said to them, 
My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. That means pray. Because that you'll see this, but that's what he's doing. He's praying. What he's asking him to do is pray with me. Pray with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed. Picture that. He falls on his face, the son of God, and he's praying to the father. Saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, the cross. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples. So he comes back after some time and he finds them sleeping. They fell asleep. And he said, Peter, could you not watch with me? Could you not pray with me? One hour? An hour, guys. Could you pray an hour? This is late at night. He said, you couldn't even pray an hour with me? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he and uh, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They were very tired. They fell asleep again. So he doesn't even wake them up this time. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Jesus is in dealing with massive weight here. All right? So I don't know what your depression or your struggle is, but let me ask you something. Do you ask people to pray for you like this? Many of us choose to face depression alone. We refuse help. We don't want to talk to others about it, much less call them to pray for us. Or if we do, we say, hey, man, can you pray for me? I'm going through something here. I don't want to talk about it. I'm going to tell you what it is, but I'm going through something here. Man, you don't sound like you expect God to do a lot. Jesus is the son of God, and he's asking his disciples to get on their face with him in the dirt all night long and pray. Can you stay up all night? Can you ask somebody, man, brother, can you stay up all night and pray with me over this? Might be surprised. Somebody might say yes. Now, look, I know, and I'm done here, but I know depression's real. I know it is. I know it's something that paralyzes and destroys. I know it's something not to be taken lightly or ignored. And I promise that though I say not all that the drugs, all the drugs in the world can't cure it, it's something God has to really do. I mean, drugs can definitely camouflage it. There's, there's definitely ways to mask it or make it temporarily go away. Doctors, are, you know, whatever it is. Ultimately, depression, though, is a lie. And if you need help, get it. I'm not, again, I'm not waving that. But I'm saying to end it, to end it, is to recognize that it's a lie. You're not supposed to be depressed. And the world tells you there's no hope to get out of that. No hope, man. You can work your way through it, but it's never going away. But I'm telling you, there is hope. That hope is Jesus Christ. I promise you. I know it for a fact. And though it's going to be a battle, I get it. He is able to raise you from depression. You know why? Because he's also able to raise you from death. Besides being our creator, he came and he faced that death for us. He allowed death to take him. That's what the cross is about. And then he conquered death by rising from the dead. That's what we celebrate at Easter. Defeating the power of death. To hold him and those who belong to him. And if you feel like you can't, you, you think you can handle death on your own, go for it. You think you can get up on your own, go for it. But if you're the guy who recognizes I can't even handle depression, much less death, and you want the certainty of hope, you can have it today. I'm telling you, you can have it right now. Right now. It's accessed by faith. Can you admit who you are? 
become a sinner. I know. You don't have to tell me. I struggle. I know. I know if I stood before God today, I have no right to be there. Can you say that? Can you tell him that? Can you trust? Can you say, admit who you are? Can you believe in who he is? Jesus, I believe in who you say you are. I don't have all the answers, but I believe you are the son of God, as your word says. I believe you died on a cross for me, as you say. And can you finally trust? Can you admit who you are? Can you believe in who he is? And can you trust what he's done? I trust that what you've done is enough to save me. Lord, I pray that there would be people today that would admit that, that would confess that. God, I pray you would set them free from the pains of struggle with death or depression or whatever it is. Lord, I pray for all of us as brothers and sisters here that belong to you as well, God, that you would break the bonds of depression, that you would encourage us, Lord, and and especially those who are really hurting. God, that you would bring encouragement and hope into their heart, that you would encourage them to begin to act and move on in obedience on, on faith and trust and expectation that you are going to deliver them. Lord, you are an awesome God. I love you, and I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.